0: This podcast is created for farmers and powered by Pioneer Agronomy to bring you agronomic insights and proven solutions to fuel forward-thinking farming.
1: Hey there and welcome to the Pioneer Agronomy Northeast podcast. We are on our 40th episode here. And this is June 7th, I am Chris Hughes. With me as always is Emily Aligar, we are your hosts. Our topic today is double cropping in the Northeast. Who are our guests, Emily?
2: Thanks, Chris. Today, our guests are some familiar voices, I guess I should say, instead of faces. Um, we have Jonathan Rotz with us, pioneer field agronomist in Pennsylvania, and Ryan Permelia, pioneer field agronomist in Eastern Pennsylvania, the Delmarva and New Jersey. Welcome, guys! Thank you for hopping on again.
1: Thanks for having us. Yeah, welcome to both of you. Uh, before we get to our main topic, we always like to start off with a section we call the odd and unexplained, where we ask one of our guests to tell us about something that they've seen in the field that might be rare or a little bit different than normal. Ryan, do you have anything like that?
0: Yeah, Chris. So actually, this is something we're dealing with. You know. Mainly in your territory, um, but it's some wind damage to young corn. Um, and probably the the reason it fits in the odd and unexplained category is, you know, initially a grower sees it and you'll have some dead tissue um, where maybe some of the kind of closest leaves or or closest leaves to the world have some damage to them. But maybe by the time you actually see the damaged tissue, it's already dead and it's a little late. And you know, sometimes we get storms come through at night, you don't realize. You've had some wind um, and it's kind of something that if you see it for the first time, you really have no idea what it is um, or how to, how to um, kind of diagnose it. So, um, you know, we always get pictures of what's wrong with my corn, what's wrong with my corn and, and all you kind of see is dead tissue. So what we've had to really do is take these on a case by case basis um, and go out and look. Sometimes they can look like insect damage, um, you know, as far as feet, maybe something feeding inside the world like a corn flea beetle. Um, We don't see too much corn borer, but sometimes you'll see um, where the midrib's dead. So then you start going down the the insect path. Um, But sometimes you can rule that out. Sometimes it'll look like um, maybe some fertilizer burn, you know, urea, some of the ESN products, if there's been a broadcast application over the top after it's emerged. Sometimes we've seen issues in that where it'll actually get in the world and burn it And then when that leaf emerges, you'll have some dead tissue. Um, but in most of these cases, what we're coming back to is, um, we've actually had wind damage on some of the younger leaves. It's in a pretty confined area. So that also kind of leads us down the path of wind damage. Um, you know, if it was kind of one specific spot, but they're all kind of close to the water and, and typically they, they get some, um, some nice thunderstorms early in the spring. So, um, I guess the, the the part, the unexplained part is you can't really ever exactly pinpoint what it was unless you were standing in the, wheel, the field and saw the wind event or, or were there, you know, like immediately after. But um, it's definitely something that wasn't expected for us to deal with this spring. It's, it's something that always pops up and we always do have something like this. But the good news is on some young damage uh, or wind damage young corn, as long as the growing points not impacted, and any of the leaves inside of the whorls that are the next ones to emerge, as long as they're in good shape, for the most part, you're not looking at any um, yield impact going forward, as long as there's not a, another storm as the corn gets older. So it's kind of what we try to walk
1: the growers through. Yeah, no, that's a good call out. And Jonathan, have you been seeing anything this spring that might be a little bit uh, odd or, uh, or different to explain to growers when they see it? Yeah, I would say for for our
3: area, um, a fair amount of it just deals with emergence issues, and there's I would say there's also fingers pointing everywhere, kind of like what Ryan was saying. You know, what was the cause of this? Is there, is there something in the in, in furrow application? Is there you know something that's going on that's you know outside of the norm here? And you know, some of that is is very possible and, and you know true maybe. However, one of the things that I am seeing is just a tremendous amount of um, what we would typically consider like a cold chill damage or even compaction issues with, uh, with stuff coming out of the ground, especially in that kind of middle May. One of the things that's really odd this year is what our soil temperatures were in May. You know, we're typically used to seeing our soil temperatures end of April in that, you know, coming up towards 50 and then just taking off. And that creates really good emergence. You know, we can get things up and out of the ground well. Uh, The other thing that warm soils tend to do is, warm soils along with warmer ambient air is things dry out fairly quick. Um, Well, you know, this May for much of the territory, uh, those soil temperatures, we had soil temperatures in May that were actually in the mornings down like 45. Um, you know, by the afternoon, they'd be 60, but they were just fluctuating a lot. And then our ambient temperatures were kind of cool. And some of the things that I'm seeing is, is going back to, you know, maybe planting a little bit on the wet side. Um, you know, did we have some compaction issues along with that? We've got some planters that are really good about making sure that we get seed in the ground with down pressure and everything else like that. But, you know, that can create even bigger issues if we've got maybe a little bit too wet a soil as we're planting. Um, and again, I, I mean, I personally experienced it with some of the places that we were that we would have fully expected that we had great planting conditions, you know, two, three days after a moderate rain. And boy, we were just still saturated at those points in time and starting to see some issues with some of those stands as well. So unfortunately in agriculture, um, especially where we're at it's very similar to what Ryan said. You know, there's, there's all sorts of variables out there But one of the things that I'm definitely seeing is just a myriad of things on emergence issues, seeing some of that buggy whipping coming up. Uh, We've even seen some herbicide damage that's probably just from cool temperatures and slow uh, metabolization of those chemistries and things like that. So yeah, all sorts of stuff, but I think it all comes back to cool and maybe some wet uh, situations that we're not always used to in this area.
2: Yeah, and Jonathan. Was... Well, beforehand, you had said that you had an app that you were going to create or something for, uh, for the springtime.
3: <laughs> yeah. So I was, uh, I was doing a lot of looking at GDU look ahead. Right. So what does it look like over a five and ten day period with GDU accumulation? Um. And you know, right or wrong, whenever we got into May, you know, I was kind of like, well, hey, we're in May things, you know, this is planting season. We just go. So I really wasn't paying nearly as much attention there as I was on April because, um, you know, even for myself, I I had conversations with guys that even if we're a little borderline, you know, we got to start, once we hit May, you got to start thinking with the end in mind as well that we do need to get this stuff in the ground so that we have, you know, harvestable uh, maturities at the end of the year. So, i was i'm right there with everybody else of trying to get crops in it's just boy i think we're seeing some differences in may planted corn that we're not used to seeing um i need to talk with some of my buddies out in the dakotas who will school me on what it's like to uh you know plant into sub 50 degree temperatures in may because you know they're probably laughing right now
1: yeah both of you hit on on good things about the weather and um You know, I haven't been around long enough, but I would say that just the weather, it seems like more and more every year, it gets more drastic, you know, whether it's a drought that we have, um, that drought gets more severe, or if it's, um, you know, rain events that we have, we don't get the normal one inch, you know, week that we would like to see and everything. It's either we get nothing or we get three to five inches. Uh, so it really is the weather is a lot more drastic in its events so keeping an eye on all that kind of stuff is definitely key um and making sure that we're planning ahead for it good stuff so moving on to our main topic which is double cropping in the northeast
2: so jonathan we'll start with you um how much double cropping are you seeing in your territory i know you cover a pretty big geography, um, but just curious of what you see in your area this year, well, this year compared to past years, and just maybe an overall view of what it's been like.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I would say for my territory in general, um, wheat acres are up. So I think that's going to lead to some more double cropping. The other thing is double cropping is a, it's a pretty standard practice across most of my area. In my very northern part, you know, there's maybe some years that they look at the calendar date, and decide is it early enough to double crop, or is it, you know, did the did the wheat come off a little later, so maybe we're not going to. But even in those areas, it's becoming more just common play. Um, double crop acre is is really on the economic side of things. It's a it's a hard thing to not pay attention to when you look at you know we we typically have a fairly decent straw market uh, throughout this entire area down into where. You know the Devil and stuff where Ryan's at as well. So by the time you uh, pull off some decent wheat, sell straw, turn around and have some soybeans come off of there, it it's really a it's it's a great opportunity for guys to make margin. So most all of those small grain acres, whether it be barley or wheat, tend to have something planted behind.
2: them. You touched on something there that I want to follow up with. Um, I'm curious, what would you suggest, and I'm sure that it. <laughs> like everything with agronomy varies from year to year, whether it has to do with the weather or um, just conditions in general, but you said, depending on when the date is that your crop, your first crop comes off. So if we're looking at double cropping something, what what's our time window like, in your opinion?
3: So it's, it's based a lot on the geography you're in. So, you know, the further North you go, that window is earlier and earlier. So you're looking at, you know, maybe the first week of July stuff comes off. Guys are really confident. It starts moving past there. Maybe not so much. You get down into the heart of my territory, you know, guys will just plant all of July. Uh, You get towards the end, you know, that you're probably got some issues. You know, I'm sure Ryan's got some ideas on that as well. One of the things I always tell folks, though, is the absolute best piece of equipment you can have on the farm for double cropping small grains is a dryer, because one of the biggest things is getting that wheat off of there as quickly as possible. Uh, Farmers are paid for harvesting sunlight. You know, it's that's what we're doing is we're trying to take photosynthesis and make it into a saleable product and taking wheat that is, you know, senesced and using that sunlight to dry it when you could have some soybeans sitting in there soaking up the sun and photosynthesizing can
1: actually be a relatively expensive venture for a farmer. Yeah, and the one thing you said about we have a good market for straw here, and we really do, and it always pops in my head that the vast majority of our straw is actually sold uh, for mushroom compost there, and, uh, I definitely don't like driving by those mushroom farms. It does sound yeah, right. pretty bad when you go by those. So uh, right. I, te- go hey, Chris,
0: I tend to like taking the straw off um, because it is, it makes a better um, seed bed to actually plant into. We have left chaff and stuff to work through. But one thing to maybe thinking about, you know, with the way fertilizer prices are, I always recommend guys put back that K. That's the potassium. That's the main thing they're removing with that plant that they're taking off. And as, as much as you're going to make on straw, if you're somebody that is going to put the K back, which is the right thing to do, maybe put pen to pencil like that on the way we're looking on, you know, some of the input costs going forward. But.
1: Yep. If you're going to pull those nutrients off, make sure you're putting them back and make sure it uh, makes sense for you on your operation. So, Ryan, um, what are some of the most important considerations that growers should think about Um, when they're talking double crop we always like to try to say that double crop think of that if if you're planting beans double crop yeah your full season beans and your double crop beans are are really two different crops there so what should they consider different about those double crop beans versus the full season i guess it's probably best to start
0: with what jonathan was touching on there we have a host of different crops that are actually double cropped we have corn um, we have some silage stuff that's put in and taken off for double crop but I would say 90 to 95 percent of the acres here are are planted from a small grain to a to a soybean here so um, actually probably the first to next week middle of next week we'll have some barley brought off so either two row or six row barley cut with soybeans planted behind it and then um, pushing closer to fourth of July we'll have some wheat come off so Uh, There's really, you know, a couple of things I really try to focus on when we're talking about planting double crop soybeans. One is, you know, maturity of your bean, row width, and population. So, you know, those are the three big things when you're making a decision about, um, you know, managing some of this stuff. So when it comes to population, we always recommend raising your population from maybe what you started in full season situations. So, for example, you know, some guys might be planting 140,000 here in April, 1st of May as we start to get later and later. So, you know, sometimes we'll have wheat come up the middle of July. Sometimes those guys are up around 180, 200, 220,000 plant or soybeans per acre um, for a couple of different reasons. One, like I mentioned before, that the seed bed is a little bit harder to plant through. So the actual seeds you're getting in the ground that are gonna turn into viable plants tends to be less. Um, the second thing is, you know, capturing as much sunlight in an in a abbreviated window because you are planting a soybean later. So the more plants you have there or the more canopy you have to capture that sunlight quicker, you know, theoretically, the more, the more yield you can produce. And the the last one, as far as population is closing the canopy as fast as you can, the quicker we can close that canopy, the quicker we can shade out all the little weeds that are coming up and trying to reach sunlight too. And if we can shut them off from getting sunlight, usually we can hamper their growth for the rest of the summer. So, um, when it comes to maturity, typically we like to see guys go actually longer in maturity for soybeans than we do. Um, you know, we would prefer you go with a longer season bean than a shorter season bean in a double crop situation. So, for example, um, closer to where Jonathan is, where our territories kind of meet, those guys maybe are planting mid to late group threes. <clears throat> and then, you know, on the shore uh, where you are, Chris, guys are typically planting mid to late group fours, sometimes, you know, early group fours, four ones and four twos. And that's really trying to lengthen the, the reproductive stage of those soybeans because they are an indeterminate plant. Um, we really want to maximize the amount of time that they're making flowers and pods and then therefore turning those into soybeans if we tend to shrink that, you know, shorter, those beans will actually turn and mature and and reach their life cycle sooner. So we want to make them live basically as long as we can in the shortest window that we're going to plant beans for the year in order to make as many bushels as possible. So the last one's herbicide, Jonathan, you have anything you want to mention about herbicides? Uh, I like to use the R word um, when we talk about double crop situations, because I think it's something that we always forget, but uh, we really need to start pushing towards some residual chemistry in, in double crop situations. Typically, we try to <coughs> do some kind of technique that's, you know, basically burn down, kill everything that's there as best we can and hope the beans canopy over and don't let anything else survive. But um, with some of the problem weeds we're running into, especially stuff like marestail or, or horseweed here, we really need to, to incorporate some kind of chemistry with a residual component to keep any late flushes that we'll get um, with some summer rains. I couldn't agree
3: more. I mean, mares tail loves having sunlight. So when we take that small grain off and open that soil up, you know, we can get a pretty good flush. Um, And like you said, having some sort of a residual down to kind of hold that and make sure that we've got it is is a big thing. The other thing I always chat with guys is, you know, keeping wheat clean is one of the best ways to have a really good program. Um, You know, if you've got a bunch of mares tail and stuff already out in that field, you come through and clip it off with. Uh, combine and then come back, and you're thinking you're going to control that. Boy, that stuff's really hard to get a hold of. Number one, most of the plant tissue's already gone, and number two, it's a it's a big nasty uh, weed at that point in time, so it can be hard to get control. And to your point too, the nasty part is, you know, we've got we do have some um, products out there. I would say, especially with the E3 system, like you know, the dicamba system continues to get more and more restrictive to where you really can't even spray during that period and for good reason um but i guess one of my biggest fears is that you know e3 becomes the easy button and that guys just say oh well we don't need much we can always you know combat those weeds with just taking enlist one out there or something And that's not the way we want to go with it so yeah right on make sure that residual and things like that is laid down
0: yeah with the enlist system we have a lot of growers that are excited about the, the zero day plant back to the two four 240 choline product because you know it's pretty neat to see in a field around here in the summertime you'll have a combine followed by maybe a, a baler followed by you know maybe somebody picking up the bales with the drill waiting to plant the soybeans all kind of in a line it's kind of kind of neat to see an operation and then behind that is usually a sprayer yep. so with the 240 system having the zero day plant back to an enlist e3 soybean a lot of guys are Excited to be able to use that chemistry, and also not having the the June 30th cutoff date as we get into the later portion of of double cropping. Yeah, you still have that in your back pocket to use. So, when it comes to the residual stuff, uh, we do have glyphosate and ALS resistant mare's tail around here. So, um, in my talks with growers, I'm trying to maybe steer them away from some of the Group Two herbicides. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like classic, probably run on more acres around here than then maybe what was good for it, you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago, so that might be part of our, our ALS problem. But, um, you know, like the 14s and the 15s are good. And even, you know, just good old Metribuzin does a pretty good job holding back some of this stuff in any kind of soybean rotation that you're in. And, you know, if you're able to spray it before the beans come up. So there's plenty of options. Um, and, you know, I think we've all been talking about this. I would just say, see what you can get at this point. Um, you know, I've, I've, heard some retailers having a, a hard time with some soybean residuals from, from any company really just because of the, the supply shortage that we're dealing with. So see what you can get.
1: You guys both talked about, uh, harvesting sunlight and, uh, the bean harvesting sunlight instead of the weeds and things like that. So let's talk about row width a little bit. You know, you got seven and a half, 15s and thirties is typically the, the three that we have in the area. When you're talking about double crop, what do we recommend?
3: Yeah. So for me, it's not 30s. Um, <clears throat> I'm i I'm still a big fan of 15s, honestly. Uh, I think, you know, to to Ryan's point, yeah, you bump your population up as you're going later and later. 15s will canopy over. They do take a little bit longer. Um, that is definitely a place where you want to make sure weed control and stuff is good because of that canopy cover. Um, but, you know, 15s, it's, it's about canopy cover. Those beans will shorten up in a double crop scenario. So we're not gonna get quite as tall, be able to cover over quite as much of a row. Um, I would say my biggest issue with seven and a halves in a drill, um, I'm not against seven and a halves as long as we can get it in the ground. Um, As we move out past wheat harvest and, you know, a lot of times the the ground's drying out, it's getting kind of hard, Um, you know, like Ryan was saying, we harvest most of the straw. So we've got multiple passes across there, things happening. a planter just tends to do a pretty nice job of getting it put in the ground. Uh, and there's some times where maybe we want to chase some moisture with that planter and try to get it down
0: good and deep so that we can uh, plant that in the moisture as well. I don't know. You have any other thoughts, it? Yeah, I totally would agree with you. You know, seven and a half are probably the best as far as closing canopy, but a lot of times those aren't, you know, maybe the, the most efficient or, or best pieces of equipment we have on the farm. but. I guess typically I see drills do the best job when we do remove the straw, seven and a half inch drills. I see drills struggle the most when we don't remove the straw and we have a lot of chaff on top of it. So, you know, in a perfect world, if I could go out and make, you know, buy one implement for double crop soybeans here, I would probably buy, you know, 15 inch row machine with, with some way to move the chaff out from where we're going to make the seed trench. So whether it's some kind of air sweeper, um, some kind of fluted no-till culture or, or something like that. But, um, you know, it, you got to use what you have and just make sure you do a good job of what you have at the end of the day.
2: I'm glad you guys brought up a point about enlist with double crop. Cause that shouldn't say that because I worked with crop protection, but that didn't even really cross my mind. So great point. Um, I wanted to ask Jonathan too. uh, I'm just coming into this and coming into agronomy and seeing kind of what's going on in the area and I've been talking to some guys in my territory which is like central Pennsylvania for the most part about double cropping corn this year for grain behind wheat. Um, I think you know commodity prices might be driving some of that so we'll see and I'm excited to see how it goes whether depending on all of that but we have a really diverse amount of crops grown in the northeast as we've talked about from specialty crops to the dairies that we've got going on here and ryan kind of touched on it a little bit earlier but jonathan in your perspective what all crops do you see as double crops in the area because my mind always just immediately goes to soybeans
3: yep absolutely and and yeah the vast majority of the acres after our small grains are going to get a soybean on when we're thinking double crops but there are a lot of other uh, opportunities out there for double cropping, and guys will try everything. In fact, you get some agronomists crazy enough that you know we've actually gone for uh, dry grain after, after wheat, and uh, you know what we've we've actually got it, but it's it's not the easiest thing to do. You got to go to like a 75 day, and you got to hope for the right year to to really finish it out. But you know, again, with the heavy dairy influence on the majority of where I'm at and where you're at, you know there's a lot of opportunity to, to, that opens up whenever you talk about silage because now all you're talking about is getting that to you know to that place where it's a good silage maturity, maybe not even towards black layer. that takes a lot of time off of that growing season And so now we've got the ability to uh, expand out. Barley is one of those things that you know just because of it coming off a little bit earlier, we have a fair amount of guys that will run corn after barley for silage. Um, we still can work if we uh, pull back hard enough on some maturities and depending on exactly where you're at the further north you go the more that will not work but there's also all sorts of other opportunities you know we have um, some shorter season uh, milo or grain sorghum that I've had guys punching in after a week just to get something off on an actual commodity basis um, I've got a guy locally here that they do sunflowers you know uh, afterwards so that can work and then there's all sorts of forages as well, whether it be forage sorghum or sorghum sedans or things that a fair amount of guys will will throw in after small grains. And that's especially you know uh, with with where we see commodities at, and also last year being a little bit a little dry in a lot of areas where guys are short on forage, then they start looking for every possible acre to go. Um, you know, we even still have have guys that their wheat on a dairy is in rotation, so that um, we've got a place to plant alfalfa for the following year. It opens that up nicely and you can get everything, um, everything ready so that you can go and have a nice stand of alfalfa. So there's all sorts of things that open up for that double crop possibility. But yeah, vast majority, soybeans.
2: It is interesting though. It's a lot more to double cropping than uh, ran through my mind because yeah, I just go soybeans immediately. But thanks guys.
1: Yeah, so down here, I mean, we'll—it's more of a variety of what we double crop behind. We'll actually plant soybeans all the way up to August fifteenth, double cropping behind potatoes, sweet corn, um, all kinds of different stuff. But like Jonathan said, when we see commodity prices go up, and especially if it's uh, more towards corn than it is beans, which we're not really seeing that right now too much, but we'll see a lot more double crop corn come in um, whether you're double cropping corn behind corn that happens sometimes here, but most of the time, like you said, it's behind barley or behind wheat, but definitely uh, double cropping helps pay the bills. And, and in my area um, for the past five years, I think four out of the five years planning a double cropping wheat, with soybeans behind it has been the most profitable acre when you compare it to the other row crops. So if you compare that to corn or full season soybeans, um, double cropping wheat and then beans behind it has actually been the most profitable area. So if you're not uh, you're not doing it, it's definitely something to look into.
0: Chris, I guarantee your territory probably is the only one that could talk about double cropping soybeans behind watermelons. I think somebody had to do that two years ago with a watermelon yeah. crop. So if we have more time one day, we could get into the ins and outs of soybeans behind watermelons.
1: Yeah, well, watermelons is one of those crops. You either make a lot of money or you lose a lot of money. So when they're double cropping behind them, they're just trying to make their money back on those bad years. Yes, yeah, I agree. No, great discussion. Um, it really is. And uh, it, it's definitely something that I think is growing more and more, the double cropping across the entire country. And everybody's looking at it and something that everybody should look at. But next we'll move on to the weekly watch out portion of the show where we ask one of our um, one of our guests to talk about what our growers should look out for over the next 7 to 14 days. Jonathan, do you have anything they should be looking for?
3: Yeah, so interestingly enough, we we started out talking about, you know, what the odd and unexplained is and I said, well, boy, the beginning of May was just really cold and, you know, stuff's looking weird because of how cold it is amongst some other things. So when I look at the weekly watch out and I look at the next week's um, <clears throat> forecast here, we're gonna get really hot really fast. And on top of that, you know, uh, a lot of areas have finally gotten some timely rains. We've got some moisture under this crop. You know, we've, we've got soils are warming up and releasing our nitrogen and everything else. This to me is an absolute perfect time for uh, what's called rapid growth syndrome. So this is when these corn plants go from a a period of time where it's cool and and just really isn't growing fast to snapping into hot temperature and they just go crazy. And actually what goes on is they grow so fast that they actually start to tear themselves as they come out of the world. And you'll see some different uh, leaf tissues where there's tearing. There will be some yellowing in, in the leaves because wherever you tear, you know, you're breaking that, um, that flow of nutrition up and down the leaf. So you know, a lot of times we get these questions about, oh, well, what's going on with my corn? You know, there's, there's these little ragged edges and tears in the leaf and, and all these different things. Sometimes you'll even see some of the world kind of catch itself. Um, so it can almost look like a buggy whipping later on with 2,4-D or whatever, but it all goes back to this rapid growth. The other part that comes with this is just simply, even without talking about the rapid growth syndrome, I fully anticipate that for as much as we did not see our corn grow in the last maybe week and a half tremendously, the next two weeks it's going to grow really fast. So depending on what stage your crop is and depending on what you're looking to do in that field and what you know equipment you have, it may be good to plan on getting in that field sooner rather than later because this crop is going to go from, you know, that V4, V6 stage, depending on where we're at, to, uh, you know, that waist high here awful quick. So making sure that if we don't have equipment to get into uh, taller corn, that whatever we want to get done in the field is is
1: finished up here very soon. Yep, the weather looks like it's going to turn to be a lot hotter and uh, a lot more sun out here. So that's definitely a good call out for us. Well, thank you all for joining us on the Pioneer Agronomy Northeast podcast. For more information on double cropping in your area, be sure to contact your local Pioneer seed rep. And for more information about Pioneer, please visit our website at www.pioneer.com.
2: And tune in next week when we discuss another timely agronomic topic. But in the meantime, search Pioneer Agronomy Northeast on your podcast app for more insights and solutions fueled by forward thinking farming. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode from the Pioneer Agronomy team. Be sure to visit pioneer.com backslash podcasts to access additional episodes and learn more about our extensive on-farm data and innovative digital tools that are fueling forward-thinking farming.